Psalm 135 this evening in our journey through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and all you have to do is wave to them, and they'll notice you and get a Bible into your hands and, and be able to follow along, not only listening to the Word, but also reading the Word with your own eyes, having double the impact in our hearts and and double the entrance into our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. And so please, if you don't own a Bible, make that a Bible, a gift from the Lord today. In Psalm 135, we have a psalm that is a call upon the servants of the Lord at the temple in the tabernacle to praise and to bless the Lord. And so this encouragement is directed to the servants of the Lord, beginning in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. And the name of the Lord represents His nature, everything about Him. Praise Him, O you servants of the Lord. You who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise Him. And then He gives reasons for the Lord is good. And of course, the Lord is always good, isn't He? Sing praises to His name for it is pleasant. It's an interesting thing that here is included in the book of Psalms as a psalm in which the congregation is calling on the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel or the leaders, the pastors, the elders, the deacons of a local church to praise the Lord. In other words, to be current in our relationship with the Lord and worshiping of the Lord. But I think that it's a very, very good encouragement that is here in the Scriptures. And it's so important for leaders to be encouraged by the congregation in some way, whether by song or whatever it might be. There's a tendency in all of us to kind of get in a rut, start to go through the motions and our service to the Lord. And it's always an indication that we've moved from our service being something that is flowing out of a relationship to now something that's just a work. And that's why Jesus wrote to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. He told them all about the wonderful things that they were doing, and they were doing a lot of wonderful things. But he said, this one thing I have against you, he says, you've left your first love. You're doing all of these things, but it's not flowing out of a present tense, personal relationship with me. And I think it's important for us in our service to the Lord, especially the longer we serve the Lord, is to realize that the Lord has called us into a position of service. And this has to do with all of us, no matter what we're doing for the Lord. But He has called us into the service of the Lord, not because He was limited on labor. He just needed cheap labor. It isn't the ministry that we perform that is most important to Him. It's always the relationship. And it's easy to get those things backwards. And that's why Jesus warned the church of Ephesus so strongly about getting that turned back around. And I think that my experience with the body of Christ, with you and however many people have been a part of Calvary Chapel and are attending another church in town 
these days or they're serving the Lord on the other side of the world, part of a church family on the other side of the world. I have found that people's expectation isn't impossible. For a few it's that way, but not for very many. But people do expect God's servants and leaders to be growing in their relationship with the Lord and to be current in their relationship with the Lord and a living that they are serving out of a living praise relationship with the Lord. And that's what the, the uh, congregation is singing then to the leaders. All leaders should always be growing. We should never stop growing in our relationship with the Lord or in our Christian service. I'm fond of the story. I read it in a biography. I think it was Jill Morgan, who was a daughter-in-law of G. Campbell Morgan, one of the great, recognized as one of the great teachers of the Bible, the prince of expositors, they called him in the last century. And he had a Friday night Bible class where, you know, kind of marker board and the whole thing. I mean, he's really breaking down the passages in the church there. Westminster Chapel in London, just full every time, people hungry for the Word of God. And Jill said that the people in the congregation never had any sense that the teacher was just one step ahead of the student. (laughs) And that's why you have to keep growing in order to stay a quarter step or an inch ahead of the student. And it's a beautiful encouragement to us, to all of us, that reminder to be current in our relationship with the Lord, to praise Him, to have that dynamic happening in our lives, and then all of these other things flowing out of that torrent of living water in our lives. And so the reasons that we're to praise Him and we're to worship Him, because the Lord is good and because it is pleasant. You think about the goodness of the Lord. We think about His goodness. We think about His grace. We think about His faithfulness. We think about His mercy. We think about all the different characteristics and, that make up His goodness. And I mean, who? that's why praise to the Lord is inexhaustible because His grace is inexhaustible. There's so much to respond to in, in praise of His goodness. And so he tells us that we're to praise the Lord for he's good, sing praises to his name for he is pleasant. And then he starts to list uh, what we're to praise the Lord for. For the Lord has given Jacob, chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. This speaks of our salvation. God has chosen us. Why would he choose you and I for relationship with him in everlasting life? I like what a friend of mine, Gail Irwin, said, and that is God's choice of him is the only thing that makes him wonder about God. <laughs> it's not a logical choice, is it? It's a love choice. It's a grace choice. And it's a love choice because God is love. And that's why the Bible talks about fear and not giving in to fear. And he who fears hasn't been made perfect in love because perfect love casts out all fear. And so this choice of God tonight, are you glad for your salvation tonight? I'm so glad for my salvation. I know you are. The things we have to praise him for. Then in verse 5, for I know that the Lord is great 
And our Lord is above all gods. He's greater than everything else that the whole wide world worships. Gods and small g's. Everybody's a worshiper. Everybody's a worshiper in this world. People think they're so smart and they look at us and they say, you Christians and living by faith and worshiping God and gods and all of these things, I'm glad that I'm so sophisticated and I'm so smart and I'm so intellectual and I'm so different that I don't worship any god. Everybody worships a god. And the Bible teaches not only is every single person a worshiper of some god, but we are becoming like the god that we worship. We'll see that a little bit later tonight. What is our God, the master passion of our life? What do we live for? Where does our money go? Where, what's the focus of our life? Where does our time go? It's very easy to identify what a person's God is. And then for the child of God to just step back and say in this whole broad multitude of choices that I have in this world to worship, I have the privilege of being able to worship you and then to know that he is almighty and that, and that as we worship him and, uh, 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 and that the, we worship him with the knowledge that he's great and that our Lord is above all gods, it carries with the idea that our God, He's Almighty. He's over all gods, all pr- pr- uh, uh, thrones, all principalities, all powers. When we pray to God and we trust in God, we're not trusting in a God that is arm wrestling with all of the other gods and demons and everything in the world where we come to God and we lift up a prayer request to Him and then we wonder if He's going to, you know, the battle that's required against powers and principality and the demonic realm, whether that that is up in the air, that there's a battle going on between God and that realm that's being decided at the moment. It's decided long ago. And the greatest demonstration was the victory that Jesus provided for us over that realm and his death and his burial and his resurrection. You can be sure that the devil heaped upon Jesus. When Jesus was on that cross, you think about it, he bore all my sins. Perfection. Sinless perfection. My sin came upon him. Your sin came upon him. Every sin in human history came upon him. No wonder why he sweated great drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane and said to the Father, Father, if there's any other way, any other way for what? For man to be saved, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And on top of bearing our sins, can you imagine the demonic assault that was unleashed I don't doubt that every power and principality and demon, large and small, all over the world and all over the universe was concentrated on a single cross for those six hours that he hung on that cross before he gave up his spirit. And Jesus defeated the power of the devil on that cross. 
And when we come to the Lord and we worship Him and we praise Him and we put our faith in Him, we're putting our faith in someone who has absolute authority over all of the gods in, in this world. And then he goes on to talk about, uh, in verse 6, whatever the Lord uh, pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and he brings the wind out of his treasuries. And so speaking of his, his almightiness, his sovereignty, his power, what he is able to do and is, is demonstrated in nature. But not just in nature, the psalmist also calls on us to thank the Lord for God's long history in the, in the history of the nation of Israel and in our, our life too. And sometimes we hit difficult times in our lives, very difficult times in our lives. And one of the most important things for us to do is to look back, not, never on our sin, never on our failure, never, never on that, but to look back and remember other times when we find ourselves, the circumstances, a little bit different. But God delivered us out of those things. And He's the same yesterday and today and forever. And so here He starts to speak to them of the long history of God's involvement in the life of the nation of Israel. He destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. And he sent signs and wonders into the midst of you, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all of his servants. How much power did it take to save you and me? It took greater power than to create all of the heavens and the earth. And here is this looking back on the day that God saved us and delivered us from the bondage of Egypt, all of it a picture of the greater bondage that Jesus has delivered us from, the bondage of our own sin and our own selfishness. And yet God did that. And then He defeated many nations and He slew many kings. Sihon of the Amorites, Og of Bashan, all of the kingdoms of Canaan, and he gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. So God not only delivered them from Egypt, representing salvation, but he brought them then into the promised land, the land maturing in the Christian life where we begin to appropriate God's promises one after another after another until we're in this spiritual land that flows with milk and honey. And God was faithful to do all of that. And He is faithful to do that in our lives as well and to remember the great things that He's done. And then He's to be praised for the fact that He's compassionate and just. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. And your fame, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people. That is, he'll be just in dealing with us. And he will have compassion on his servants. And so this beautiful um, speaking of the fact that the Lord is both just and he is compassionate. 
And then he talks about all of this enduring. It's a part of God's name. In other words, he'll never change. It's called the immutability of God. God never changes. He will always be just. He'll always do what's right in our life. And he will always be compassionate. Some people are just and they're never compassionate. Some people are compassionate, but they're never just, and they get us in just as much trouble. But God is perfectly just, right, in his dealings with us, and he's always compassionate in that. And then he went on to talk about the praising the Lord just for the privilege it is ours to be able to worship the true and the living God. The idols of the nations are silver and gold. Now, that's true in a lot of different ways. <laughs> the golden rule in the Bible, do unto others as we would have them do unto us. The golden rule in the world is he who has the gold rules. Those are two entirely different. Those are two different kingdoms. One, you don't have the grace to live in all your life. And the other where we can be planted and we can prosper forever. And so the idols of the nations are silver and gold, talking about the idols that people make with their hands in order to worship. They have mouths, but they don't speak. These statues and these things that they made. Eyes they have, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouth. In other words, they're lifeless. And then here's the tragedy of it. Those who make them are like them, and so is everyone who trusts in them. So the gods of this world, they are unable to speak. They're blind. They're deaf. They're lifeless. And... The psalmist declares by the Spirit of God, they make everyone who follows them spiritually dumb and blind and deaf and dead. And again, we become like what we worship in life. That's the fact of the matter. If I worship sin, if I worship money, then money will never satisfy. I will always need more. If I worship uh, some particular sin, then that sin will always take me into greater bondage into that sin. I will become like what I worship. If I worship myself and selfishness, then I will become more self-dominated and paralyzed as a result of it. So we become like what we worship, which is the greatest news in the whole wide world for a people who worship Jesus. Because as we worship Him... We become more and more like Him. With unveiled face, we behold the glory of the Lord. And as a result, we're being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. And that's what happens. And so this privilege of being able to not only worship the true and the living God, but then to be conformed into His image as we do so. And then he makes this final call to... Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, a house of Israel. Bless the Lord, a house of Aaron. He goes back to the leaders. Bless the Lord, a house of Levi, a tribe that was given to uh, overseeing the worship of the Lord at the tabernacle and then the temple. You who fear the Lord, now he pulls all of us in. Bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord out of Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Blessed be the Lord. Calls on the whole world to bless the Lord. 
because there's always reason to bless the Lord. Now, Psalm 136 is an interesting psalm, and it is a celebration of God's mercy. And more than that, it's a celebration of God's enduring mercy. In other words, that God's mercy never runs out on any of us. The Bible teaches that every single day we wake up is what is new every morning. His mercy is new every morning. That was an interactive moment, by the way, that you missed. You can never use it up. There's a hope. We wake up in the morning, and, and here we are. We're in need of mercy as much as we were yesterday. God doesn't go, you again? Man, you're going, you are running through this stuff like crazy. No, he's got enough. He says, I've got enough for you for another day, and then tomorrow I'll give you even more for that day. And so this praise to the Lord, this celebration of God's enduring mercy. And one of the joys in life is to be able to look at our lives and notice his mercy. He can give us mercy, and we can depend on it, and we can use it up, and the pace of the culture is so fast, 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 unhealthily fast. At some point, you just got to start to disconnect a little bit because nobody can be as connected as the culture wants us to be connected. We are not made for the way that we are connected to stuff. It's going to overload the heart. It's going to overload the mind. Nobody can process the sheer amount of information that is at our fingertips. Mentally, we can't handle it. Emotionally, we can't handle it. And so there needs to be this thing where everything is moving so fast. Yes, we know it's all the grace of God. It's all the mercy of God. But then to step back and recognize, God, that was your mercy. You did that, Lord. And it can be anything from a parking spot that you pray for. I'm not against that. God said, cast all your cares on me. Because he cares for us. Or it can be some gigantic thing that happened. And one of the beautiful things is to just stop and to give him praise. And that's what the psalm does. It's a psalm where the, the psalmist takes and he lays down these different things, that forms that God's mercy takes, and then there's a, a moment to stop and give him thanks for it. Because thanksgiving is one of the blessings of the Christian life is to stop and to recognize the blessing and give him thanks. So Psalm 136 was kind of a, a situation that was a responsive psalm where you probably had the priests at the temple, um, maybe even with a choir. So you can, you can imagine Jerusalem during the feast times or really during through the course of the week where you would have these, in the feast times you would have they, said, they estimate a million Jews would come into Jerusalem in order to worship the Lord at the temple. So then when that kind of a thing would happen, what they would do is they would put the, like a great choir together, and the choir, this great Levite choir, would cry out the first line of the psalm, and then the people would respond by saying, for his mercy endures forever. You up to this? 
All right. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Now, this is your part. All right, and that's not bad. Somebody knows a little bit about mercy. So there's that praise for the fact that the Lord is good. What's the old saying? Sometimes I just ask people. And a lot of times I ask it just before I'm going to dunk them in a water baptism. But would you think I was what? Going to drown them in Lake Shasta? By the way, we had 31 baptized this last Monday. Praise the Lord. And I look and I'll say, has God been good to you? Some of them can't even talk back. Can't even say yes. God's been so good. God is always good. And that's why you talk with people. What's the old saying? Um, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. That kind of a responsive thing. And what a wonderful thing to know a God who is always good. And sometimes his ways are hard. And he develops strong people. And he's doing it today. There's a need for strong... This is a... We need godly character for the hour that God has called us to live for the Lord in this time in human history. So he can put us through some things to develop our character and refine our character. But he's always good. Always good. He cannot be anything but good. And even when he is forced to judge those who reject him, which I hope doesn't include a single person in this room, even in his judgment, he is being good in the grand scheme of things. And it's good to be reminded that he is always good. He can never be anything but good to us. It's in his nature. It's impossible for him to do something different. Now, sometimes it can take us a little while to see that that was good. But sooner or later, sometimes later, we come to realize that's what you were up to. I get it. You were being good. Sorry about what I said or what I thought. Sorry about my doubts. Then he says, oh, give thanks to the God of gods. I know I caught you by surprise. We can do better than that in verse 2. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods. Right, you guys are getting like a little Hebrew on me. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords. To Him who alone does great wonders. To Him who by wisdom made the heavens. To Him who laid out the earth above the waters. To Him who made great lights. The sun to rule by day. And the moon and the stars to rule by night. And so here's the praising of the Lord for 
his, uh, for him as creator of all of the creation. It's a funny thing, you know, we, we live in the context of the world, and so there's trees and there's bees and there's plants and there's people and there's animals and there's mountains and there's valleys and there's rivers and there's snow and there's the cycles and there's oceans and this whole big thing. And then, this, and then we can just kind of get used to it. I, I remember reading a quote where someone said, where if a sunrise occurred every thousand years, everyone in the world would get up in the morning to watch that happen. But because it happens every day, we just get used to the miracle. But the Lord is to be praised for His creation. Our God made all of this. Even in its fallen condition, it's amazing. And our God made it. And then he goes on in verse 10 to talk about uh, just thanksgiving to the Lord for His deliverance of of Israel from Egypt. So again, it speaks to us of our salvation. Verse 10, To Him who struck Egypt in their firstborn... And brought out Israel from among them with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. And as wonderful as that redemption from Egypt was, our salvation was a far greater miracle because it cost the blood the very Lamb of God. And then in verse 16, he moves on to giving the Lord praise for his mercy, for his deliverance of them again, not only out of Egypt, but into the promised land. To him who led his people through the wilderness... To him who struck down great kings and slew famous kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant who remembered us in our lowly state and rescued us from our enemies, who gives food to all flesh. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven. And the words mercy and the the word mercy and the word forever are repeated 26 times in this particular psalm in order to drive home one single great point, and that is that God's mercy is our eternal portion. He will never, ever run out of it. He will never stop dealing with us on the basis of His mercy. 
No concern. We don't have to be worried about a future judgment or any of these things. We live a life as Christians where all of that has been lifted off of us and to know that God is being merciful to us today. He wants to be merciful. He is merciful. And that that will be our portion forever and ever and ever. And some truths you just need to hear 26 times for to penetrate through some of our hearts who doubt the mercy of God, or to just remind us because of the greatness of the difficulty sometimes in life where we just need to be reminded of the fact that His mercy does endure forever. And Psalm 137 is a beautiful psalm of the remembrance of Jerusalem. And the psalmist writes and says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. And so here we have a psalm that's being written from the Babylonian captivity of the Jews because of their sin and their rebellion against God. For centuries, God warned them and He 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 warned them and they just didn't, they disregarded Him with their idolatry and their sin. And so he said, I know how to cure you of that. You like idols? I'll take you to Babylon, the capital of idols. And you can have idols come out of your nose if you think they're so great. You can stuff yourself with idols and see if it compares to the life and the promises that I have for you. And when the children of Israel went into that captivity for all of the problems that the nation of Israel has, they have a lot of things God's still going to work out between Him and those people in the last days. But it forever cured them of idolatry. And so they went into this Babylon, and when they got into Babylon, apparently when they would get some time off or whatever, they would go either to the Tigris or the Euphrates River or one of the canals or something, maybe on a Sabbath day, and they would come together and they would remember Jerusalem and they would remember the Lord, kind of birthing their relationship with the Lord again and thinking about those great things and longing for those things once again. And so the psalm is a, it's kind of a heavy psalm because... You've got them in captivity, and they never needed to go into captivity. And the Bible says that a smoking flax Jesus will not quench, and a bruised reed he won't break. So if you've gone into the captivity of sin and walking away from the Lord and you're coming back to him, God had a future and a hope for the nation of Israel, and he has a future and a hope for you. Never doubt that. But the psalm is intended to make us stop and to think about what we have as Christians and not to carelessly throw it away. The psalm is written so that God's people from the Babylonian captivity on would not make the same mistake that the children of Israel made. And so it's a beautiful psalm that it accomplishes that. And so they were remembering Zion, and he says, We hung our harps upon the willows trees in the midst of where they were in Babylon by the, the rivers. For those, for those 
for these were care the mm-hmm. boy verse verse threes I'll tell you they can really be isn't just death that comes in threes for there those who carried us away captive asked for uh, asked of us a song and those who plundered us the babylonians they requested mirth saying sing us one of the songs of zion and so the babylonian capt- captors they had conquered so much of the world and they said all right play us a song from your land play us a song from where you come from play us a song that make a happy song from where you come and of course for the jews all of that was directed toward the lord and and so here they were being asked to sing these songs so far from Jerusalem and they said we wouldn't do it we took our harps and we hung them up uh, in the tree we couldn't enjoy those songs as long as we were in exile and as long as Jerusalem had been destroyed and so they hung up the, their their instruments of praise they put them on the shelf is how we would put it and then their commitment to uh, never forget Jerusalem how shall we sing the lord's song in a foreign land If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my hand forget its skill. In other words, become paralyzed. If I'm able to sing these little ditties for the Babylonians and forget the worship songs that my hands used to play for you in Jerusalem, then let me not be able to play the harp again. If I do not <clears throat> if I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth let me be unable to sing if i do not exalt jerusalem above my chief joy and remember o lord against the sons of edom the day of jerusalem who said raise it raise it to its very foundation and so in verse 7 he calls upon god to meet out and to really to remember and to avenge the ruthless treatment of the jews by the babylonians encouraged here by the edomites and the edomites were descendants of esau who was a brother of of uh, jacob and so they were their kind of cousins of the jews they were blood relatives and yet when the babylonians came in to destroy jerusalem the edomites called on the babylonians to just level the city destroy everybody in the city they were it was just a terrible thing that they were piling on god was judging his people and it broke his heart to judge his people and yet these people were rejoicing in that never rejoice when you see god chastening another person or having to judge another person never rejoice in that it puts us in a place where god be forced to judge us And so he said, "Lord, remember what the Edomites did to us." And then, speaking of Babylon and the judgment that he asked would come upon Babylon, he said, "O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the stone." So the psalmist calls on the Lord to give Babylon. eye for eye and tooth for tooth what they did to the Jews and to the children of Israel in Jerusalem and the Babylonians took the children of the Jews and they threw them up against the rocks and bashed their heads in in order to kill them among many many other atrocities 
And so he said, remember that and judge that, Lord. He didn't say, listen, we're innocent and any of this. It was like, no, we're guilty. We're paying the price for what we did. But what they did there was wrong and for God to avenge it. And he declares that God had already declared that he would avenge that. And Isaiah prophesied of a king by the name of Cyrus who would come on the scene and he would overthrow the Babylonian Empire. And, of course, it ultimately gave way to the Medo-Persian Empire. And so with the Babylonians, how they treated the rest of the world and treated the Jews, then they were treated in that same kind of ruthless way when they were defeated by later on by the Medes and the Persians. Again, it's so important that if God ever uses us as an instrument of his correction in another Christian's life, that we never go beyond in our own flesh, go beyond the limitation of how far God wants to go in that chastening and in that discipline. Because if we go beyond it in our own flesh, then God will have to step in and He'll have to chasten us for going too far. And that's why when Paul wrote to the Galatians, in Galatians chapter 6, he said, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, Christian has gone into sin and in need of someone to come and speak to them about repenting of their sin. Paul wrote and he said, You who are spiritual under the control of the Holy Spirit, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And the Babylonians went way too far and the Edomites went way too far. And it's a good lesson for us to learn as well. And then in Psalm 138, here you have a psalm that is a psalm of praise for answered prayer. Answered prayer is one of the greatest experiences in life and in the Christian life. Now, there's a technical sense in which all prayer is answered. Yes, no, wait. Coming. Coming to a person near you. So he always answers our prayers. But one of the great things is to be interceding related to maybe a loved one or related to a situation or whatever it might be in the prayer and the prayer and the prayer. And then you receive the answer to that prayer. And what it does in our heart, what it does in our spirit, how it encourages our faith. And I think that's one of the reasons that the Lord has us pray is because he knows he's going to answer those prayers. And so why not, in, in addition to knocking out all of the other great things that prayer produces within our lives, have us be a part of the situation in prayer so that when he answers it and we see the answer to that prayer, that our faith is encouraged in the Lord and in the things of the Lord. And so that's what Psalm 138 is all about. He said, I will praise you with my whole heart. 
before the gods, I will sing praises to you. And the gods are the gods that the world worships. In other words, the psalmist says, I'm going to praise you with my whole heart. I'm committing to praise you 100%. And I'm going to be uh, out loud in my praise of you. I'm going to be out in the open about my relationship with you. I'm not going to hide it. I don't care what the rest of the world is worshiping or the rest of my family is worshiping or the rest of the neighborhood is worshiping or the rest of the school or workplace is worshiping. I am going to praise the Lord and I am going to bless the Lord in, in my life. I'm going to walk openly with him doesn't mean that at your workplace you can corner someone around the water fountain and then use the boss's time for 45 minutes to share the gospel you do that on your time that's this is the boss's time on that but it means we don't we've got a relationship with God that ought to flow out of our lives and can and should flow out of our lives Anywhere that we are, and that's what he, David just says as he says, listen, I don't care what anybody else is worshiping. I worship you, and I'm not going to hide that. I'm going to openly praise you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name. And so here is the, um, the David, of course, there was the tabernacle when he was king. The temple would be built by his son Solomon. And David wasn't always in Jerusalem during his reign. So here you would have the offerings that would be offered morning and evening, the burnt offerings and all, and David would be far away. And so what's the next best thing to um, being at the actual site of the worship of the Lord at the tabernacle and at the temple? It would be to them worship in the direction of the temple and the tabernacle. And that's why you see people who are far away from the other side of the world, from whatever they're worshiping. And I'm not saying that their God is right or anything like that, but that's why they do that. They can't be there, so they're going to do the best thing they can, and they're going to pray in that direction. And so that's what David said he committed himself to here 3,000 years ago. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to do and draw as close to God the best way I can in the situation that I'm in. I may not be able to get to church because it's too dark when I drive home in the winter or because my health won't be able to do that anymore or I've had an injury or a surgery or something like that. Well, I can watch the service online. I can listen to the service online. I can fall toward Jerusalem. I can fall toward God in some way. I remember listening to a Bible study tape years and years and years ago by a man, and uh, his name is Arthur Blessed, and he, he's the guy that carried that cross all over the world, still does, I believe. And um, anyway, it was an interesting tape that I was listening to, and he was talking about obeying the Lord. And he, and he was making the point that if, if you're living, and I'm going to change the cities because I can't remember where, but he says, if you're living in Omaha and God calls you to minister in a city in Venezuela, then buy a ticket to go to Venezuela. 
Obey the Lord. See what He's going to do. And the idea is so often we're looking at things where we want to have the whole plan, have it all figured out. You go to Venezuela, and then this great, big, gigantic, amazing thing happens. And then after that happens, you become the most famous person in Venezuela, and then you become the king of the universe. And this is the kind of promises that we like to have ahead of time on things. I like to walk by faith without walking by faith. I think all of our flesh is that way. So the point he was making was, go ahead and do what God tells you to do. Fly there and then see what else he's going to do. He did it with Abraham. And then he said, if you don't have the money to fly there, then take a taxi cab as far as your money will take you. If you don't have money for a taxi cab, he says, start walking toward Venezuela. If you can't walk toward Venezuela, he says, fall on your face in the direction of Venezuela. But move in the direction of, of all of, uh, of this. I thought it was very, very good. I mean, that kind of a, a, a strength of commitment to God's calling and uh, to see what he would what he would do, it always takes faith. Again, I want to I want to think I'm walking by faith when I'm walking by sight, and the promises of God do not unveil to those who walk by sight in the same measure that they unveil to those who walk by faith. This, they don't please God in the same way. And so he said, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name. And why praise your name? For your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above your name. And that, what that's saying is that God will unfailingly keep his word because his name, his character, his reputation depends upon it. And in the day when I cried out, here it is, you answered me. And here's that Praise to the Lord for answered prayer, and you made me bold with strength in my soul. And what it does in our soul when God answers a prayer that we've been lifting up to Him for a time, and we see there's the answer. Thank you, Lord. And then He declares in verse 4, David does, that one day the whole world is going to uh, praise and to worship the Lord. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord. When they hear the words of your mouth, isn't it going to be wonderful in the thousand-year reign of Christ? All that's going to be matter is what Jesus says from Jerusalem. His word is going to dominate the earth. What a world it's going to be during that time. And yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, just praising Him for His wisdom and the privilege of obeying His word. For great is the glory of the Lord. And though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. And so just to praise the Lord for the fact that, despite the fact that he is infinite, he's so great, he has created the heavens and the earth, and yet he is still interested in the lowly. He actively involves himself with mankind. And it's amazing that he does, but the proud he knows from afar. And he kind of keeps the proud at a distance. He gives revelation to the proud of their need for Christ, their need for Him. But they will never know God in the way that the lowly know God, the, 
the saints know God. They will never know God until their pride is broken. And then they come to God in lowliness. And though I walk through the midst of trouble, you will revive me. His confidence in the Lord in the midst of trouble. God, you'll revive me. Why would you say, God, you'll revive me, except I think I'm dying? You'll stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. That He's praying that God will actively... No, he's, he's doing more than that. He's confessing that God will actively involve Himself in the defeat of His enemies. And the Lord will. And it's talking about physical enemies that we can have in this life. People come against us just because we're Christians. It's irrational. It's demonic. It's where it comes from. Think about the devil. He has the whole world to use to just tweak people and to grab them and to use them. They don't know Christ. They don't have the Holy Spirit inside of them. They're just open vessels for the devil to use to say anything to us, to do anything to us. I mean, this is the world that we live in. And then yet here the psalmist declares of the fact that God will will defend him, stretch out his hand against the wrath of his enemies. Now, you take it even further and you talk about our real enemy. The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You look, we see the faces. We see the people. We know the names. We know the circumstances. Paul says, by the Spirit of God, don't think it's about them. They're instruments of something bigger. We wrestle against powers and principalities. We wrestle against a demonic realm that uses people. And then we think it's about people. And then we don't pray and we don't put on our armor. And then we don't interact with the spiritual realm on the level that God has equipped us to and calls us to because we just think it's a personality conflict. Or that they don't like us for some kind of a reason. And so here's this confidence that David has, that even the enemy, the devil, how he hates us, he, he would destroy every one of us as Christians in an instant. We'd be in a heap in an instant in this room, except for the fact he's not allowed to do it. And he's not allowed to do it by God Almighty himself. David was confident of this, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And when David says, don't forsake the work of your hands, he's talking about himself. Lord, don't forsake me. So David's in a vulnerable place. Again, this praise, he received answer to prayer. He's thankful for that. But he's still dealing with a lot of things in his life. You look at David's life, you say, boy, that king thing is overrated. And I know he wasn't a perfect man. But boy, the price he paid to be faithful to God's call upon his life. Wow. And so he closes it and he says, this is all real. This is real. We understand it. Don't forsake the work of your hands. Lord, don't forsake me. Don't forsake me. Don't abandon me in the middle of what I'm in the middle of. And it's okay as a Christian to pray that to the Lord. 
as long as we remember the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us, that it's never dependent upon my prayer. He will never, ever forsake us. So we're free in the urgency of our heart, the depth of the trial that we're in, to say, God, don't forsake me. Don't forget me. If you don't help me, I am through. But always with the realization that the Bible says, which is the only thing we can trust, the voice of God in the midst of deep trial, the Bible says that Jesus will never leave us and he will never ever forsake us. The one who died on the cross of Calvary to save our souls and to pay the price so that we could have the relationship that we have with him. He never forsakes a single one of us and he never loses a single one of us. Even if we feel for a moment that our life is in jeopardy at the moment. God never does it. We'll stop here. Next time we'll get, come to Psalm 139, the most amazing psalms in the book of Psalms, but they're all amazing. Whatever the next psalm is, is the most amazing psalm, the book of Psalms. If the worship team had come forward, I'd like us to just close in a couple of short worship songs.